they say when, when you're under stress, sometimes you forget things. I forget a lot. You know, sometimes it feels in life, it feels like you're just learning to drive, doesn't it? It feels like you're swerving back and forth and, and eyes on the immediate things. And, and well, you can't take your eyes off the immediate things because there's so much immediate stuff that's just pressing at you and, and, and falling upon you. And all you can do is just keep avoiding the stuff, right? And yet still, God's word for, for us is the same. God tells us things that are further out there. And the danger is that we can begin to think those things are way off. Those things are irrelevant to now because they're so far out there. And they don't really relate to the here and now, what's going on right in front of the front bumper today. When actually those things that are far off, those are the things we need to keep our eyes on. Because those are the things that will help us chart a, a straight course through all the stuff that will distract us and jerk us around otherwise, okay? In the book of 1 Peter, we're, we're, we're just starting a series through 1 Peter, and Peter is writing, as, I, as we've described before, the, he's writing to chosen outcasts. He's writing to those, and one of the scenarios of why these people would be outcast um, very literally in the, in the places in which they now live, where they find themselves, is a lot of them, perhaps, were expelled from the city of Rome by a decree of the emperor. All the Christians and the Jewish people that lived in Rome at that time were forced out of the city by the emperor's decree. And they had to, had to land here, there, and there, and there, any place they could find shelter and try to restart a new life again. Among, um, in a place and among people that they didn't belong. And uh, in the midst of that place, um, Peter's using that experience to help them understand a bigger experience, that as Christians in this world, this world is not our home, he's going to say. We are pilgrims here. We are sojourners. We are on a journey. This is, this is part of the journey. This is not the destination. We are on our way somewhere, and we are going through the here and now as, as we go, but we need to keep our focus. We need to keep ahead of us that ultimate destination. And the ultimate helps us to make sense of the immediate. Looking farther ahead can dramatically change how you react to the things. I described earlier with the kids that, that if I'm looking at the, all the stuff that's right in front of me and I'm, I'm reacting this way and that way, and, and people close to me then can feel like they're getting jerked back and forth because I'm getting jerked back and forth. And a lot of us experience that, don't we? You're pushed by this, you're surprised by that, and you react. Somebody says something, or you perceive something, you react to it. If you had a further perspective, what thing happened, or that thing that was said, or that thing that was heard or perceived, wouldn't have the same effect on you. If you had a further perspective, it wouldn't push you off course like that. You wouldn't have to react to it in the same way, because your focus is further ahead. What, a, what I want to do in First Peter this morning, in the, in the few verses we're going to cover, we've, we've already spent a couple of weeks in, in verse 1 and then verse 2 and over the whole book, so we're, we're settling into a slow pace here. What I want to do this morning is look at verses 3 to 5. In First Peter 3 to 5, it continues part of his opening, what's called in... What's called in the, in the circles of the day was referred to as an exordium. This was an opening part of the letter. The interesting part about it is it doesn't tell... Those who received the letter initially, or us, it doesn't tell us anything specifically that we're supposed to do. 
Some of you came here this morning looking for something that, what is the next thing that I'm supposed to start doing in my life? Well, Peter doesn't expressly say that. But what he does tell us has meaning for what we will do. So there's going to be some implications out of this. So first I want to, what does he say? And then I want to ask, well, what difference does it make? What are the implications of that? So that's kind of the roadmap. That's where we're going. And, and the first, what he says concerns what has God done. Look what God has done. What Peter is doing in these verses, he's bragging. He is saying what you were singing, how great is our God. How great thou art. Look at what God has done. Our wonderful and merciful God. Look what God has done. That's what we're going to be doing here. So let me read those three verses. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and starting at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead unto an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It goes on, but we're going to stop there this morning. We're going to take a small bite this morning. First of all, I want us to look what God has done. And there's three pieces to that look what God has done that I want us to consider. That first piece, look what God has done, is our wonderful and merciful God, our great God has caused us to be born again. Peter is kind of like Psalm 23 here. He's kind of, in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall, I shall not want. That whole psalm is set out as if it was a sheep bragging on his shepherd. That's what Peter is doing here. He's going to use that shepherd analogy, in fact, later on in the book. But he's bragging about his God. He says the first thing that God has done, God has caused us to be, God is so wonderful, God is so great, he has caused us to be born again. Our God is the best God ever. There's a practical side here. Easily, easily we can think about, uh, you know, in the media and things are going on, you ever get to the point, you don't know why God didn't do this thing or that thing that you wanted to do, and you grumble about God. Do you ever do that? No, you don't do it. Sure you do. Sure you do. Disappointed with God and you grumble about God. Well, can I tell you, Facebook is not the place to do that. Okay? Okay? Prayer is the place to do that. The Psalms are full of prayers where, where, where the one praying does that. But something about it, when you grumble to God in prayer, even still, your, your, your mind and your heart and your soul are still directed in the same direction, in the right direction. And, it, and that puts your focus where it should have been rather than on the problem. And so over and over again in those psalms, what begin with grumbling and complaining about God ends in praise to God and confidence in him again. So praying is, the, is a great place to grumble about God. Facebook is not the best place to grumble about God. Uh, let me give you an illustration of that. How many of you uh, grumble about your parents? Oh, a lot of... A lot of my kids are here. They didn't raise their hands, but they do. At least half of their parents. And maybe it's parents, maybe somebody else. But parents are a good example because there's, there's some connection in, in terms of how we understand God as how children understand their parents. So, so with parents, if some of your friends only heard the bits from you about your parents that were the grumbling, the disappointment when they weren't doing the thing that you wanted... What would your friend's impression of your parents be? They are not nice people. In fact, he's a real jerk. 
Okay? But if in the midst of that, maybe, maybe sometimes some grumbling worked out, but what if you practiced as well? Oh, what if you practiced as well telling everybody else how wonderful your dad was? Right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to get a lot of love back there. Okay. <laughs> and, and this is something that works really well for, for all of us, one another, but it, but it works in our relationship with God. If we practice if we, if we say something to others about how wonderful our God is, like Peter does here, one of the things that that does is it reminds ourselves. And it changes our perspective about who our God is. Peter says, our God is a wonderful, great, and merciful God that according to his abundant mercy, he caused us to be born again. Now hang on here, caused us to be born again. I thought I believed. I thought I believed in Jesus and I was born again. And yet God says he caused us to be born again. There's, the, there's a wonderful tension there. I've talked about it before, but in verse 5, in verse 5 we, we, we find some of that same tension. In verse 5 it says, who we who believe are kept by God's power through faith. So we're, who keeps us? How are we kept? We're kept by God's power. How does that happen? Through faith, through our believing. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 1. We obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Wait a minute, I thought God caused us to be born again. He does. And yet our believing, receiving God's gift of eternal lives, we we. In our faith, we receive the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So both are working together. God causes us to be born again, and yet we believe in Christ and are saved. Let me give you an illustration of that. This came to me the other night. It was such a good illustration, I just had to, had to, had to share it with you. How many of you have a lamp cord? You have a light. You, you plug the light into the wall, and then the lamp goes on, right? How many wires are on that lamp cord? There's two. That's right. Now, some of you get frustrated if you're living in an old house and you have one of those lamp cords, you have old wall plugs in the wall, but the lamp cord, you bought a new lamp and it has this wide prong and a thin prong, right? You ever get frustrated by that? And you can't plug it into the wall and you have to take some cutters or something and cut those extra little tabs off to get it to fit in the wall again. Well, it's a safety feature, really. You shouldn't have cut it off. You should have updated your wall plugs instead, but that's expensive. It's a safety feature because you have two wires on your lamp. One of them is hot and one of them is neutral. Okay? You need both of them. But if you were to touch just one of them while you were holding on to a, let's say, a cold water pipe. Now, why would you hold a water pipe and grab an electrical cord? I don't know. There's something wrong anyway. But if you were to do that, I hope you're holding the neutral wire and not the hot wire. If you held the neutral wire, hopefully, if your electrical circuit is wired correctly, nothing would happen to you. If you're holding the water pipe and you hold the hot, where all of the power is, it's not going to go well. Okay, now don't try this at home. Don't experience. Just take my word. Some things you should believe because they're true without having to experiment with them. All right? So you have a lamp cord. It needs both sides to happen the hot and the return, but the, but the real power that makes it all go is on the hot side. That's God's side, okay? No one is saved without closing the circuit, without believing, and yet without God's power, none of us would be saved. God, according to his abundant mercy, causes us to be born again. Think about it. It's according to his abundant mercy. It's not out of his abundant mercy. Let's say you have a rich uncle, and you have a rich uncle, and every Christmas he gives all of his nieces and nephews a present. Do you want him to give a gift 
out of his abundant wealth? Or do you want to give him to give a gift according to his abundant wealth? Think, think about it. Words matter. Out of his abundant wealth, he might give you an orange. And I hope it's a good orange. But it doesn't seem like much, especially from him. Now, somebody else might give you an orange, and that might have been a huge gift for them. But the rich uncle, he could have given you a whole lot more according to his wealth. Okay? God, uh, God not out of his mercy, but according to his mercy. God is abundantly, graciously merciful to us. And to that same measure of the very character of God is the measure by which he saves us. He gives life. He causes us to be born again. He causes us to be born again. You remember that conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus? Nicodemus comes to him by night, and Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is confused. How can I be born again? How can a person be born again? Can he go back into, into his mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus says, no, there is a physical birth and there is a spiritual birth. That which is born of, of the flesh is flesh or physical, and that which is born of the spirit is spiritual. Every person who is born physically also needs to be born again, another, another birth spiritually. You must, Jesus said, be born again. And yet God, God out of his abundant mercy, causes us to be born again. What we need, God has provided abundantly for us if we will receive it. Our wonderful and merciful God has caused us to be born again so that we have a living hope through Jesus Christ. We are, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the Greek-Roman world was not a hopeful place. In fact, when Paul talks about society at large, he says, you used to be, he's writing to the church, he says, remember when you were without hope and without God in the world. The Greek-Roman world was considered a hopeless place. This life was all there was. And some did better than others, but that was all there was. In fact, uh, Paul wrote a letter to a church in, a, in, a, in the Greek town of, of, of Thessalonica, and in that letter he writes to them concerning those who have died and concerning the hope that we have in God. He says, I do not want you to be uninformed so that you grieve in the same way as the others who do not have hope. Apart from God, apart from Christ, there, there isn't hope. And yet we have been born again to a living hope. A hope that is alive. A hope that goes beyond the grave through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what does the resurrection of Christ have to do with it? What is that all about? Well, you have to understand the death of Jesus in order to understand the resurrection of Jesus. The death of Jesus, why is it that the Son of God dies? Why is it when he hangs on that cross, the one who has never had, had the, his fellowship, his relationship with God interrupted, why is it that all of a sudden he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That relationship has been interrupted. It's been cut off. In fact, darkness descends that, that makes it graphically obvious to everybody standing around that the relationship between God and his son has been interrupted. Because, Peter says, and he'll say that in chapter 2 of the same letter, he bore our sin in his own body on the cross. And so that when, when Jesus bears our sin, our sin that separates us from God, our guilt that separates us from a holy and righteous God, also now separates Jesus from that same God. He took that separation, which results then in death. The sin, sinless Holy One took our sin upon himself, and so he dies, and he's separated from God. 
And yet now he's raised. He ascends into heaven. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high, never to be separated from God again. How can that be? What happened? What about sin? Well, just as he dies an infinite death because he takes death more than anyone, because he takes death for everyone, in his resurrection, death no longer has hold on him. Why? Because sin has been dealt with in that infinite death. Sin has been paid for in full. There's no more invoice due. He now can sit at God's right hand, never again to be separated from God because of that sin, because his death paid for it in full. And so when we believe, we are baptized. We are baptized when we believe because that baptism is something God has given us to remind us. It's a way that we, we declare our faith. Uh, and in, the, in, in Romans chapter 6, Paul says, we are buried with him by baptism into death. And so that's why we go underwater. And we, if you stay there a while, the death analogy really works. <laughs> but we don't. We, we come back up out of the water again. Every, don't worry. Don't be afraid to be baptized, folks. Every person I've baptized, I always bring them back up. Never failed. And, and we come up, back up out of that water, and that's, and, and that's as if coming up out of the grave, coming up out of death, because we are reenacting something that we were buried with Christ in his death, and so we are also raised up with him to walk in new life. We, we die in his death, and we live in his resurrection. We have a living hope that, think about it. Remember the disciples at Jesus' crucifixion? Peter is so intimidated that he denies the very one that he told him hours earlier, they may deny you, they may run away, I will never deny you. Just hours later, he denies him. The disciples scatter, and then they're cowering in fear in a, behind locked doors, afraid and waiting for when it is that they're going to be arrested too. But then everything changes. Remember that? Everything changes. What was it? Jesus is risen. Jesus appears to them. They know for certainty. They, they, they touch him. They see him. They, they, they put the, they put, Thomas puts his finger in the wounds in his hand. In the nail prints. And he puts his, 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 his hand into that wound on his side. And Jesus tells him, be not unbelieving, but believing. And then Jesus goes on to say, blessed are you because you see and believe. But even more blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Believe in him and share in his death and in his resurrection. That when Jesus is alive, now what more can Rome do? And all of a sudden, this ragtag band of disciples is emboldened fearlessly that they can stand before the council and they can say, you do what you will, you decree what you think, but we must obey God rather than man. We are not scared of you. Or in the vernacular, you are not the boss of me because my boss is risen. My boss has defeated death, and there's no other claim anybody can have on me. I love the story of Richard Wurmbrandt, told in the book, Tortured for Christ. In the midst of, of heavy persecution in communist Romania, the, the, the secret police had arrested Wurmbrandt, and they told him, we are going to execute you. And he said, okay, that's fine. In fact, that'll be wonderful. But first, let me tell you what you're going to do. When you take my life, you will not have taken my life. 
You will have simply, you will have simply released me from this worn and frail and, and worn out body, and you will have ushered me into the very presence of the living God, my risen Savior. And I will be delivered from all of these pains and all of these bonds, and I will be free and in the presence of the glorious God. And not only that, when all of the rest of the Christians hear that you had to kill me because you could not get me to recant my faith, you could not get me to deny my Savior, they will be all the more emboldened as well. And they will share their faith all the more because there's nothing you can do to any of us because the last you could do to us is death, and that has already been defeated. And the secret police huddled together, and they said, well, I guess we can't execute him then. And they tried various other tortures and things, and uh, he continued to tell about it until his natural death decades and decades later. But that confidence that the Lord is my life and my salvation, whom shall I fear? That's what Peter is telling them here. We have been born again unto a living hope, not just any hope and not a hope so hope, but a living hope that lives into eternity. We have a hope that goes beyond the grave that is eternal in the heaven because it is centered in Jesus Christ who is risen and our salvation is in his resurrection, not merely his death. That would be defeat, but he was raised for our justification and that we in him have also been raised up to new life, a life free from intimidation. Whom will I fear? We have been raised into a living hope. You know, the biggest complaint about God among believers in the midst of life is in the midst of whatever difficult trouble that we face, we complain, why doesn't God do something about this? He has. He has. He has done everything about it that this has no claim on it, and yet the glory is best seen, seen when in the middle of this, when it ought to ruin us, it doesn't. We, we might be struck down, but we are not destroyed. We might be troubled, but we do not despair because we have a hope in a risen Savior. I told you about one of the greatest complaints that Christians have against God. Do you want to know the greatest complaint that God has against Christians? Okay, this is my opinion, okay? God didn't tell me this is his complaint. God doesn't complain to me. Maybe that's his own best example. But I think one of God's greatest complaints against Christians is that we continue to insist that we want God's blessing our way on our terms when his way is better. Think about that the next time we're, we're wishing for, why doesn't God do this thing that I want to do? Reality, in many ways, is the return to the Garden of Eden. It's wanting it my way instead of God's way when God's way would be better all along. Look what God has done. We have a wonderful and merciful God who has caused us to be born again unto a living hope through the risen and resurrected Jesus to a future inheritance that is preserved for you who are protected by God for it. Preserved for you who are protected by God for it. We have an inheritance. Now we might think of inheritance in a funny way in terms of just something you might get when you're older and your parents die and you may have a little extra, extra money you can do something special with in their memory or honor or maybe just buy a new boat. I don't know. We think of inheritance in those kind of terms. But inheritance in the ancient world, it was your identity and means of life. 
If that inheritance were lost, you would have no way to make a living. You would have no place to live. You would have no identity because your identity came from that family heritage that was handed down to you. So it was more than just a deposit in the bank account. It was the land that you had lived on and continued to farm that was now placed from your parents into your trust. But let's think about inheritance more in our, in our common terms. There's two kinds of pensions. You know, when you're, when you're old and gray and, and aren't working anymore, how are you going to eat and how are you going to pay the light bill and how are you going to keep a roof over your head? Let's think of it in those kind of terms. And we have a couple of retirement scenarios that work that out, right? There's two of them, basically. There's a defined contribution plan and a defined benefit plan. Do I have that right, Brad? Defined contribution, defined benefit. Brad's my financial expert. I like to get help, insight from him. He does this financial peace university thing. A few of the other guys do too. It's helpful. Okay. Defined contribution means this. It, you define how much money either you put in or maybe you and your employer put in, but it might be just you. You may be stuck on your own, but you define how much you're going to put away. Hopefully that's going to grow. And when you're old and gray, you will, you'll be able to draw back out of it again. You'll be able to live on that, hopefully. That's a defined contribution. Now, what are the problems with that? Well, how long do I need it for? Might it run out? Will I have enough money? Will it have grown big enough? Is there any interest out there today? Is, the, is the, that investment that I set aside, is it going to grow big enough so I will have enough? Is there going to be some scam? Did I invest with, with uh, somebody shady that promised me a great return, and yet actually they took my money and ran, and I have nothing? Those are some of the vulnerabilities of a defined contribution plan. Okay, now I'm not dissing defined contribution plans. I'm just saying it has its limitations. Now, what about a defined benefit plan? These have normally been found, well, they're still found today, probably the only place still is in public employment. Uh, because none of the other businesses can afford them anymore. And this is why. They promise if you work under these conditions and for this long, you are going to get this much of a benefit week by week or month by month forever and ever and ever until you die. Uh, you might live to be 70. You might live to be 170. Well, it hasn't happened yet, but you know, the scientists think they're getting there. But no matter how long you're going to be taking care of that promise, no matter, you didn't put anything in but it's promised to you. This inheritance is actually more like that one. It can't run out. It can't diminish over time. Even though you're paid along the way, the balance isn't sinking that you might run out, it won't have enough. This is a defined benefit plan rather than contribution. You didn't contribute to it. God did this. You have an inheritance. Your future is secure. Your eternity is secure. Didn't Jesus see, say, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where, where, where moths and rust corrupt and thieves will break in and steal? He said, rather, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot corrupt it. It is uncorruptible. It is undiminishing. It cannot fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you. You know, there are no thieves in heaven to steal your inheritance. God doesn't let thieves in. 
Oh, but he'll let us in. All we have to do is, is, is believe in Jesus and thieves are, are forgiven and transformed into generous, gracious, giving people. It's a wonderful thing what God does. And so he doesn't end up with any thieves in heaven. He only ends up with wonderful, gracious, giving, generous people. Nobody in heaven would steal your inheritance, okay? It is safe. It is secure. It is guarded by God himself who also protects you. We are protected for it, that which is preserved for us. Our wonderful and merciful God has caused us to be born again unto a living hope, eternal life, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance which is preserved and secured for us, who our own souls are protected by God. You remember Jesus' words to his disciples? He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. I give to them eternal life, and no one, no one can take them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me, he's greater than all, and nobody can take them out of my Father's hand. We are protected. We are secure. And that helps. Keeping, having that long-range view in life helps in the midst of the stuff that surrounds us day by day here. Now, that's what God has done. What difference does it make? Well, first of all, let me ask you a question. Is all of this, is heaven real? If God has reserved for us an inheritance in heaven that we are protected for, is heaven for real? Or is Ecclesiastes right? Remember the book of Ecclesiastes, it starts out, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. Translated better, that would be nothing, nothing. Everything is nothing. It's all useless. It's all for nothing. When you boil it down, there's nothing left. No matter how well you live, you will eventually not. No matter how well you live, you will eventually die. And when you die, nothing matters. It's over. That was the Greek world. Without hope and without God in the world. Is Ecclesiastes right? Ecclesiastes is a, is, a, is a wonderful sermon that is, is taking life from the point of view as if God is not. If there is no eternity, then this is the way it is. And the, and, and, and the speaker in Solomon, or speaker in Ecclesiastes, whether it's Solomon or not, he, he goes after one scenario or another, one thing that we do, whether it's riches, whether it's physical pleasures, all kinds of things, he goes from one thing to another, trying to find meaning that will last, and in the end, it's nothing. None of us will last. Sooner or later, life will be over. And even the best of life and even the best of relationship of life then are gone. You have two choices. Is heaven real or is Ecclesiastes right? If there is temporary and eternity, if there is both, if there is this temporary, but it's only temporary, and there is eternity, then which of those two captures your imagination? Which of those two is where your focus is? To borrow the analogy from the children earlier, is your focus right over the hood on the temporary, or is your focus long-term down the road on the things that will matter ultimately? Number two, if God has given us a living hope through a living Savior, that poses a question for you. Is Jesus risen or is death the end? Is death the end? Is Jesus risen or is death the end? Those are one of two possibilities. There was an inscription in that town of Thessalonica that Paul wrote to, and it said, after the grave, no reviving. 
After death, no meeting again. Is that true? Many people thought that it was. And if that's true, you might as well get all that you can in life while you can because there's nothing else, there's nothing beyond. And yet Ecclesiastes says, I tried that. I've been there, done that, and it did not satisfy. Is Jesus risen? Or is death the end? What if the purpose of life is, as Jesus said, this is eternal life, that you would know the only true God in Jesus Christ that you have sent? What if this life is, in fact, only the introduction? What if this life is the prologue to the book and you haven't even started the real story yet? What if that's what this life is really about? And yet we live the prologue as if this was the whole thing. What if we should be looking at this life as God's training ground, proving ground, preparing us for what real life is going to be. This is only nursery school. We will not continue to live in kindergarten. Is Jesus risen or is everything nothing? Which way you go on that choice defines your life. It defines the, the, the choices that you're going to make. It's going to determine which way you go on a lot of other, other, other decisions. Thirdly, if God according to his abundant mercy, has caused us to be born again. That answers to Jesus' words to Nicodemus, you must be born again. That again leaves us with a question. Is it true that you must be born again, or is God a benign myth? That word benign, you might go to the doctor, he might tell you, you have a tumor. You have a growth. The growth could be malignant, which is bad. It's spreading as cancer in your body. It's deadly. You need to do something about it. It might be benign. It might be harmless. It's an abnormal growth. It shouldn't be there. We might even remove it still, but it's benign. It's not going to cause you other harm. Is it true that you must be born again, as Jesus said, that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven? No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again as he told Nicodemus that night. Is that true, or is God rather a benign myth? Really, it's one or the other. Both of those things cannot be true. And yet we live, yeah, a person's got to be born again, and yet we, we can easily live day by day as if God really is harmless. If it really doesn't matter in the day-to-day -day life where we find ourselves. If there is an eternal home, if heaven is real, if Jesus is risen, then what must you and I do? Jesus said you must be born again. It's interesting, when Nicodemus came to him, Nicodemus seems to know. He says, we know that you're a teacher sent from God. Because nobody else can do the things that you do. And yet Jesus doesn't, doesn't just simply receive his flattery, his praise. He says, it's about what you must do in response to that. If Jesus is who he said... Is it true that I must be born again? Am I, ultimately what this means, am I really accountable to God? Are we? For us to hear God say, you must anything, goes against us. It has from the garden on. For God to say, you must anything, goes against our grain. It comes at us sideways, and we go, oh, wait a minute. But the issue is, are we accountable to God, or is God harmless? One or the other, are we accountable to God or is God harmless? And if we are accountable to God, 
then it's on his terms and not ours. We'll have his blessing, but we'll have it on his terms. Often we think we, we think, we look at the trouble in the world, where did this come from? And it comes from the fall of humanity all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And here we are now, and we look back at Adam and we say, thanks a lot, man. Thanks a lot. Look what you've done. Man, if I had been there, if I had been back in that garden, all of this could have been different. If you'd only been the one back in the garden because you're a pretty nice person, you got it together. If you had been there instead, all of this could have been different. No, no. We're just like that. We also want God's goodness on our terms. We want God's blessing, but we want it our way. We will insist on wanting, that, wanting what we perceive to be good our way instead of trusting God for God's way, even though God's way is better. If the Garden of Eden tells us anything, it tells us that. And yet day by day, Christian, day by day, believer, follower of Jesus, still we easily want it our way from the best of our perception. And what Peter is saying is, folks, you're about to run into a bunch of stuff that isn't going to make sense. But even as you do, even in the midst of the stuff of life that doesn't make sense, you need to trust a good and a gracious and merciful God. Look what God has done. Sing the song. Remember the hymns. Tell yourself the story. Tell it to others. Because in rehearsing the truth of what God has done, you will set your mind and your eyes further down that road where you will continue on that straight, easier, straightforward, through the bumps, all the way into eternity. Because that's our home. That's our destination. That's where we're going to. This world is not our home. We are only passing through. And yet this is the place where we will learn what it is to live by faith and trusting the one who made us for so much more. God is not benign, so we are not alone. In the midst of the stuff, we are not alone because God is not benign. God is not harmless. I remember the words in C.S. Lewis when I think it was one of the dwarves asked the beavers, in the uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I think it was, asked about the lion, Aslan, and they're talking about this great lion, Aslan. And one of the dwarves a little scared by this, and he says, well, is he safe? And the beaver just laughed. I didn't even know beavers could laugh. But the beaver just laughed, and the beaver said, safe? No, he's not safe, but he's good. God is not benign, and he is not safe, but he is good. And you can trust yourself to him. God is not benign. God is not harmless or helpless. Nothing for you will be lost. You can trust in his resurrection of Jesus for your eternity. Now, some of you today, even while we're, while we're closing in the next couple of songs, we're going to sing two more songs, and we're going to be on our way into the stuff of life today. And it's a busy day. Well, it's a busy day for me and my family. It's, it's a busy day for a lot of you. And tomorrow will be interesting all on its own. And there's people that you know. There's stuff around you. There are things and situations that there's, seem like there's nothing you can do about. There's nothing anybody can do about. God is not benign. God is not harmless or helpless. I want to challenge us this morning as I pose those questions. Even as we, as we sing and the worship team comes back up and we get ready to sing these songs, I want to challenge us to pray. In fact, let's close our eyes right now, except for the worship team as they're coming forward. I don't want them to stumble. Let's just pause, close our eyes, and 
I'm going to ask you just right where you're at. If there's stuff, if there's something in your life, or if there's something in the lives of someone near to you, someone you care about, that you want to pray for, you want to ask for God's very active help in, you want to ask for God's intervention there, I'm going to ask you just to put up your hand. I don't know if it's for you or for somebody else, but just put up your hand for that need, that burden that presses on your heart. I know that they're there because I know what life is like. All right, I, I see you. I'm going to challenge you to do one more thing. Thank you. You can put, the, put your hands down. Only you know. God knows. I'm going to challenge you to do one more thing. Join me. My hand was up. I'm going to challenge you to get up, whether it's praying for a situation in your own life, your own need, whether it's for somebody else. There's something about putting a a, a, a step into that prayer. Moving from one place to another. I don't know what it is. There's nothing magical about the front of, front of this church except that if you come up here, there'll be somebody else who will come alongside and pray with you. And that's good. But I want to encourage you, as we sing, we're going to sing a song, and as we're singing that song, would you just go ahead and come on up? Just come forward out here into the aisles up front here somewhere if you want to kneal down the steps because that, that's, a, that's a, easy, a good place to kneel. There's nothing special about the steps. But there's something about kneeling in our, in our body and in our heart. I'm going to invite you to put feet to that prayer. Put feet to that thing that was in your heart that caused you to raise your hand. I'm going to invite us to come and to ask God for the mercy that he has promised. For you, for somebody you love and care about. All right, would you do that? Would you go ahead and come forward and, and others, elders, leaders in the church, would you be willing to come and pray with Folks, as they're coming forward.